Hi, everyone, and welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. My name is Troy Mix. I'm Associate Director at IPA and your host for this episode. This episode of First State Insights is part of IPA's Visions of Recovery series, which features 15-minute conversations on five important questions. What's one thing you think will be changed for good after the pandemic? What's one thing you hope will change? What needs to happen for this change to occur? What are you doing to make it happen? And how can folks get involved? My guest today is Monica Sanders. Monica is the Managing Director of the Georgetown Environmental Justice Program and a Senior Fellow at the Tulane University Disaster Resilience Leadership Academy. We spoke on September 27, 2021, about the need to consider and address the digital divide in recovery. Let's get to the conversation. So, Monica, thanks for joining me today. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here with you, Troy. As we get started here, could you tell listeners who you are and what you do? So, my name is Monica Sanders. My title is Managing Director of the Georgetown Environmental Justice Program. But I think write and research about social justice, climate justice, and environmental justice and equity issues, which is where this digital divide topic we're going to talk about today falls into place. This is a social justice issue for me. So kind of with your background in mind and with the digital divide you just mentioned, I mean, what's one thing you think will be changed for good after the pandemic? Post-pandemic, we've learned how to conduct most of our business and our lives online if we want to. Right. We've learned that we can do it all day, every day. Now, whether that's healthy or not is not my profession, but people comment on such things. And what's changed is we were having this conversation about the digital divide and the state of work and education before. Now we don't just have a gap in between the have and have nots in the digital world. We have a chasm. And unless we take some real action, that's also what we're going to see changed post-pandemic. What's one thing you hope will change moving forward? What I hope will change is that, you know, broadly speaking, access to the Internet is more democratized. But a huge factor in that is cost. It's really difficult to get good Internet for less than $100 a month. But I think that there's enough good Internet out there that if we wanted to, if we change some policy that NTIA, if the major carriers would cooperate, we would be able to offer people who struggle with that more accessible, more affordable options to the internet. And we saw some of that happen in sort of a patchwork way throughout the pandemic. And I think one thing that I hope will change is that that we'll have a more comprehensive policy response to what we're saying and that business will follow along. So how do we kind of go from patchwork to comprehensive? What kind of needs to happen to knit that all together in a way that's sustainable moving forward? Oh, if policymakers would read the research and listen to the science, we've had plenty of people do studies about where are the black spots. So you can refer to a number of geospatial analysts who partnered up with social scientists who can tell us whether we're talking about rural areas or urban areas, exactly where the black spots are. And they overlap with poverty and sometimes they overlap with marginalized populations. So if policy writers could take one of these studies, and I have no preference amongst my colleagues, and read them. (laughs) And I actually say, let's write it while we're thinking about rules for the internet and other subjects, right? Privacy, cost, security. Let's actually write some generally applicable guidelines for the way that internet needs to be laid out. So we have to push business to work 
by legislation because we've seen it was patchwork because different companies were doing it on their own, right? If they felt guilty enough about it or felt like it was corporate social responsibility, they did some things, but there was nothing generally applicable. So we need legislation that's informed by research. So what's your role in this discussion? I mean, what are you doing to kind of make that change happen? I am one of those people that's done some research and some mapping, but I also am fortunate enough to have served in government in all three branches of government, actually, and still have connections there. I sit on the board of the D.C. Internet Society. So the same things that I'm saying to you, I'm actually saying to policy writers in the executive branch. Say like, hey, don't just look at my map. Look at, you know, I think it was Daniel Aldrich and some other people did this wonderful map of the digital divide and where the black spots are. Um, yeah, it was Daniel and Dean Cowens out at um, El Paso. Like, hey, look at these group of researchers. If we did a good, solid review of the literature, we could probably map the U.S. Why don't we take a look? There's pots of funding for it. Comes down through executive order, presidential directive, or budget request. That's a little squishy as to how it should be used. Like, so use your budgetary discretion. So I'm there saying those kinds of things. I would love for other people who have influence or who are activists and would like to influence to join in that conversation. What messaging do you find works when you've been in the room with folks and been trying to make the case? What is most convincing to folks, do you think? What's most convincing to folks is looking at what something actually costs. Because I acknowledge the flaw in the terminology that I'm using with you, but it's because I know you and it's okay to say democratize the internet. Because it has tinges of you know, redistribution of wealth or socialism or these kinds of things that aren't necessarily popular with some listeners. You talk about what's the cost of having an employee that has the skill set to do everything online and can work virtually versus an employee that can only do a small amount of things for you? What's the societal cost of people who are flexible enough to work in a way, however society ebbs and flows versus having thousands of people on the unemployment rolls at a cost to us in a different way because we haven't given them the opportunity to access other types of employment. Like it costs, either one of those latter two things costs more than just giving people access. And when you look at the numbers of how many people have been forced out of jobs because they don't have the digital skills, like how much that unemployment costs us versus we could give a hundred dollar stipend to every single household in the country and it would still cost us less <laughs> than the unemployment. And that resonates with people when you actually yank out the budget and they can look at the spending and understand the connection between the two. Whether you're somebody that is socially justice minded or someone who thinks more in terms of fiscal policy and good use of taxpayer funds that resonates across populations. And you mentioned, you know, people out there doing research on kind of the, the black spots on the map where there's there's not that access at the level we'd like to see. Could you point us to things you've done recently in the past that kind of are most compelling in telling that story? Yeah, I spent when I was there at UD with you all. And now that I'm at Georgetown, I spent two years working in Baltimore in a section of the city that was an Internet black spot by design. Like it was a drug hub. And so it was a, a policy decision to not have uh, Wi-Fi in that neighborhood. When we started, we did not know we were going to have a pandemic. This was about access and being able to do research around that. 
here's what happened. Long story short, there's no fiber optic cable, but we use a network of meshes to give high quality Wi-Fi to that neighborhood. We allowed some very curious young people who wanted to learn about the internet. We trained them on how to maintain the network. So now what you have is a microcosm of society, right? You have people who didn't have access to the internet, didn't have those skills, who now have access, and a subset of people who now have higher level skills about how to maintain a network. Um, and because it's the internet society, we're like, we could give you a certification if you want to go try to get a job with Comcast, because like, this is an actual job, just go and configure networks. One of the other outcomes is that people were able to do laptop drives and get kids who were struggling to go to school online into their classes to close that education gap. So that's just a quick, sort of quick story about when you take a microcosm of what our society looks like with a pretty light-handed intervention, this all costs less than $20,000, inclusive mainly because of the free labor or the exchange for labor and information with these young people to make a difference in the experience of people in this neighborhood. And people, I think this is fair to say, people have kind of short attention spans. I mean, the pandemic has been kind of in our face going on 18 mm-hmm. months at least now. And the digital divide was kind of front and center for a lot of people who yes. may not have thought about it before. As someone who's been trying to advocate and message around this topic, how do we kind of keep the focus moving forward once we get back to some semblance of normal? How do we keep the pressure on to make something happen? You know, before the pandemic, we had some low-level concerns about the future of work, and that was starting to be a national conversation. Now we know what the future of work looks like. So the next set of messaging is, you know, as we're learning from our pandemic experience, this is one of the biggest lessons we've learned. It's about not just the future of work, the future of education is right here. And so that needs to happen. And the other thing about it is other kinds of social justice movements will most definitely continue after the pandemic. And it's about leveraging that energy as well and letting social justice activists know because many of them organize in the digital space, how important it is to have this access. So you want to, or what I would plan to do, is to keep it on the table as a general population and economy issue, but also keep it on the table as a social justice issue that is not exclusive from other things that we are trying to advocate for. So you've been involved. I mean, how would you recommend that people could kind of start getting involved? What are kind of some of the best ways for them to get involved around this issue? What I tell people is, you know, you don't have to go and get on a roof and set up a mesh for somebody. I know this because it was my job a long time ago. It's like, you can actually write a letter to a member of Congress and they read them. Like, it's a whole job. Somebody has to read those letters. (laughs) And it actually goes somewhere. Like, you have to compile them and give them to your member of Congress. In Delaware, you have a great member because some of my students wrote to um, Senator Coons and they actually had a little town hall with him. He was so interested in what the students had to say. So, first of all, you have great representation in Delaware. Take advantage of that, write letters. Most people don't realize this, so they don't get enough public feedback. The NTIA, which is a federal agency that's part of the Department of Commerce, it actually, to the extent that the internet is regulated, and it's not, but to the extent that the U.S. government has influence over the internet, 
that's their jurisdiction. Because it's an agency within an agency, they don't get a lot of feedback right to the NTIA about the digital divide. That's also where this money is that the government doesn't really know how to spend. So write to the NTIA and say, I think you need to address this. So those are two easy things that you can do. And by it's right, I mean, go online and submit a written, <laughs> not, you can write an actual letter. So do those two things. Reach out to organizations like the Internet Society and Color of Change is another social justice advocacy organization that's taking on the digital divide. Reach out to them and donate. Now, if you do happen to be a highly skilled person with access to be able to do meshes and things like that, go volunteer in a neighborhood and put up some meshes and give somebody Internet access. So those are three things you can do. <laughs> I have one last kind of big question, I guess, which is. Like if you look at this space, I think there's a tendency to want like a silver bullet solution, to want to solve the digital divide once and for all. I mean, what would you say about both like that notion that you can just kind of solve it once and for all? And then also, if we can't solve it once and for all, which might be leading your, your question a little bit, <laughs> what, what would be some signs that we're heading in the right direction, at least? Yeah, it wasn't a leading it wasn't a leading question. It was a realistic one. It's infrastructure. And so just like highways aren't built the same in every single neighborhood or part of our country, access to the internet can't look the same in every single part of our country. Like where I was working was an urban area. I have friends who work with the tribes and in rural areas in the middle of the country, also dealing with digital divide issues, but the way they work and the needs of those communities are very different. The challenges are very different, right? Like, I would not know what to do if a mountain goat took down my mesh. And that is a thing that really happened to someone. <laughs> the way that infrastructure needs to be set up. Is we different. haven't had that problem in Delaware yet that I'm aware of. So, <laughs> Someone has overcome it. <laughs> so that knowledge manages out there. But I was just like, when we were sitting in one of our meetings, I was like, wow, I, I would have been quite proclaimed. But what does it look like? We are in a place where when you look at the big numbers and we talk about access, we say as a country, we're like at 90 some percent, but that's about smartphone access. That's not infrastructure access. We're really more about 70 or 80. We could get to 90% where the overwhelming majority of the country has access somewhere within a radius of their home. That would be progress. Well, Monica, I want to thank you for your time today and really thank you for sharing your insights and your thoughts on Digital Divide and how it connects with recovery. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me talk about this. You can find out more about Monica's work by visiting her personal website at monicacsanders.com. To learn more about work at the Institute for Public Administration, including our Recover Delaware initiative, visit ipa.udel.edu. Thanks again for listening today. Subscribe to First Aid Insights wherever you get podcasts and make plans to tune in again soon. Take care.